Hello, everybody. Welcome back to the Institute for Youth and Policy podcast. I'm your host, Alex Smith, and I'm joined here today by my co-host, Mariel DeVos. I'm also joined here today by Justin Krebs. Um, thank you for joining us, Justin Krebs. Thank you for having me. I'm, I'm happy to be here. I'm sorry, Sounds it took me to unmute. I'm, I'm calling in from a park, so you'll occasionally hear some sounds of joyful or in you know, crazed small children in the background. <laughs> Sounds great. No worries. It's always good to be in a, in a good environment. You know, we could probably all use a little bit of outside time, but um, just Krebs, would you like to just for the listeners, because there may be some listeners who aren't fully aware of who exactly you are. Do you want to give a little bit of a rundown as to who exactly you are? Um, we see that you're wearing a pin that says Justin Krebs for uh, City Council. Do you want to just give a little bit of background? Sure, thanks. Uh, my name is Justin Krebs. I am a longtime political, uh, progressive political organizer. For the last few years, I've run the campaigns team at moveon.org, which does big national campaigning on healthcare, immigration, climate justice, reproductive rights, gun violence, elections. And as the campaign, the director of campaigns, I, I serve as the air traffic controller among the different campaigns we run at any given time. And that's what I've done over the last six years. But along the way, and before that, I've done a lot of other political organizing projects, very local here in New York City, some national in nature, all of which have been around the theme of how to connect folks with each other, build social capital, and ultimately bring folks together around aligned progressive values to, uh, to make change. And that's been around arts and culture, parks and open space, civic participation, uh, parent organizing, food insecurity, and more. Right. Sounds good. And um, you, you, did you mention that you were working with, working with um, uh, getting a, an education kind of reform or rebuilding where you're located? Sure. So uh, I've been involved in parent organizing for the last few years as a parent of three kids in elementary school here in Brooklyn. They go to a school called PS39 which is a, a pretty good, pretty small school uh, in the public school system. But my involvement has been not just in my school, but district-wide. School District 15 is a very diverse district. The schools have a lot of different needs and I help support parent leaders across the district. We try to find ways to improve all of our schools. And I should have said, and I didn't, that I'm running for city council uh, in the 2021 elections, which are coming up mid-June. And schools are the first, last, most frequent thing I I talk about how we integrate our schools, how we prioritize them, how we resource them, how we focus on uh, smaller class size, individual learning opportunities, outdoor and enrichment activities, things that get us off of standardized tests and into more authentic experiences. That's awesome. So what you mentioned school integration, and that's a huge issue I know, especially in areas predominantly swearing and that can make it really, really difficult. It's good because if they have more funding, I think Sorry. she's froze. Yeah. Um, can you hear me? Yeah, you cut out. Yep. You good? Right here. Sorry about that. <laughs> oh. Sorry. <laughs> oh, good. No. She frozen still? Am I back? You're back. I can I can hear you, but you're frozen. Like your picture is frozen. Oh, there you go. Okay. 
Okay, I will just turn off my video if it's Sounds being good. problematic. Okay. Um, sorry. So as I was saying, you mentioned school integration and in a district as I believe at least, I don't know too much about the demographics of Brooklyn, but in an area that's so much larger than where I live, how do you really manage that? I mean, I can't even imagine trying to figure that out because it's such a complex issue. So what are, as a candidate, what is your ideas for how to deal with that? That is a terrific question. And the size of New York City's school system uh, is hand in hand with some of the challenges, also the amazing opportunities. But to put it in perspective, there are a million kids in the million students in the New York City school system. It's almost like saying one out of every 300 Americans is a student in our public schools in New York. Not one out of every wow. 100 Americans or 300 Americans is somehow connected, but is actually a student in these schools. Then when you add on the family members, the caregivers that are all involved, it really has huge impact. And for a long time, people have said, well, you can't make dramatic change in the New York City school system. It's too big. It's like turning about a battleship. How do you do that? You can't make changes. Well, last March or a year ago, March, we did make changes very quickly because of the pandemic. We suddenly, like schools all across the country, learned what remote schooling was like, realized we had to think about schooling in a different way. And as we reopened this year, we ended up with smaller group cohorts and partial weeks. It was not perfect by any stretch. A lot has gone wrong in the last year. But what I think it has shown to us is you can make changes, even in a system of 1 million students. What, what would it look like if we make those changes, not in a moment of crisis, but actually with intentionality about the opportunities here? So that's, that's a big picture way I think about it. More specifically about integration, uh, the school system in New York is divided into a lot of smaller districts. And in District 15, which is the school district I'm in, which overlaps with District 39, the city council district I'm in. So there are city council districts and school districts that are imperfectly aligned. Uh, we're actually in the, a few years into uh, an innovative new way of, of uh, students being accepted to middle schools. In New York, there's so many elementary schools, there's so many middle schools, it's not just like you sign up for your local school. And there's something called the District 15 in Middle School Integration Plan, which is actually a really groundbreaking way of integrating middle schools uh, with greater racial and economic diversity than ever before. This has taken a long time to come about. It was the work of a lot of advocates, a lot of parent leaders, a diverse set of leaders, both white families and families of color. And so far it is working on integrating the middle schools in a different way than before. Now, what we need to do is, is a couple of things, shore it up and strengthen it. Think about how those lessons of integration also expands elementary school as well as the high school. And how do you take it beyond District 15 and, and do similarly inspired integration that is more district specific for districts around the city so some of the answer is that you go district specific and some of the answers you learn about what works and some of the answers that you just have to innovate and decide that we can do better for our students i hope that answered your question yeah it's a it's a difficult problem just cut out again with distance learning i don't know how new york has done it but i'm in seattle and can you hear me? Yeah, we can hear you. <laughs> okay. <laughs> um, I don't know how it's going in New York in your specific district. I'm in Seattle. Um, Washington schools were closed up until three weeks ago. Um, ours just opened. Currently, my school now has about close to a quarter of the people who are actually in person 
in quarantine because of COVID cases. We've had six cases and we've got about 120 people in quarantine because of those six. How, how has reopening schools gone in your district? Because here it has definitely been a interesting experiment. <laughs> I'm, I'm sorry to hear that. That's, it, it, uh, it's surprising that, it's, that at this point in where we are that, that it's not being contained more or traced in a different way and that it's causing so many disruptions. It's also understandable when there are COVID cases to want to shut down, keep folks safe. But the, I think that there's been a lot of work over the last year that's helped us understand better public health approaches to make it less disruptive. So one of the challenges of reopening schools has been how many times they've closed down. If you reopen schools and it's only part-time and then they get closed down regularly, it doesn't actually help students and teachers have consistency they need educationally. It also doesn't help parents and caregivers have consistency they need in terms of making plans for their, for their students. Uh, in New York, we had a rule for a while called the two case rule. If there were two unrelated cases in a school, that school would shut down for 10 days. The reason is if they were related, you could track them and trace them and just pull those classrooms out. If they were unrelated, there was a risk that it had spread somehow more widely through the school. The challenge is that in some of these larger schools, uh, that was done in ways that would send hundreds or thousands of students home for 10 days because there were two unrelated cases somewhere in the building. And there just have to be better ways than that. About six weeks ago, we got the city to agree to get rid of the two case rule. It might have made sense when schools were reopening in September. It might have made sense at a point where we're much more freshly traumatized by what happened last spring when there was a lot that we didn't know. But the fact is our knowledge is better, our public health practices are better, and they got rid of the two-case closure rule. And so let's replace it with other ways, more targeted closures of classrooms, more thoughtful tracking and tracing. And since then, it's been about a month since this has happened, far few schools are, schools are closed, far few students and teachers and curricular plans are disrupted. And honestly, the infection rate citywide is going down. Schools have not been a source of spread here in the city primarily. And uh, the ability to keep schools open, which we believe can be done safely, done thoughtfully, needs a lot of communication, needs communication in a range of languages and a range of customs and a range of means to make sure you communicate with parents about what's expected. But uh, it's been working okay so far. That's awesome to hear. It's definitely been interesting because Washington State, we've been so bubbled here in the West Coast. So I don't know what's going on in New York despite having family there. I only know how Washington's been. So it's really interesting to hear that there have been successes and that this is something we can do because sitting here in Seattle, I'm like, we should have just stayed closed for the whole year. This made absolutely no sense. We go back six weeks and then half the people are in person, half the people are at home. And then we're sending then, hundreds more home each week. And that, that, that disruption is, is chaotic. And in New York, I will say, even though there have been several times to opt back in to in-person school, 60 to 65% of our students and families have still chosen to be remote. And part of that is the uncertainty about health, but part of it is the uncertainty about schedule. They don't want every day to wake up and say, is my school going to be open? Um, and so, so even though my kids are in person, they've been hybrid most of the year, they're now full-time, which is great. That's just not true and it's not accessible for most students. And I do think a lot of it has to do with not wanting the disruption. Now, how do we get ready for fall where we are ready to have uninterrupted schooling, consistency, full-time schedules, clarity about health? I think all of that will help 
get more families to opt back in. And in fact, we were so frustrated that the DOE, the Department of Education of the city, haven't been forthcoming and transparent about what they've been discussing with remote-only families. We decided to run surveys on this ourselves. So even though I'm only running for city council in one, one of 51 city council districts around the city, we actually conducted a citywide survey where we called thousands and thousands of families and we got over 100 responses in the end, geographically and racially representative across the city of folks who are, whose kids are remote only. And we said to them, are you thinking about going back in the fall? What are your major concerns and how could the city address them? And just even from those 100 answers, getting some sense of what folks are thinking is super, super helpful. And it shows most people want to go back in the fall. Actually, they're ready. There are health concerns that the city can address and need to be thoughtful about. And also that it actually showed that most people haven't heard from the city yet asking them their plans. So just there needs to be a lot more communication. Yeah, that's completely that's completely understandable. I definitely agree. Communication is a key thing. I know in Washington, just because the um, the Pfizer shot has just now become available to kids 12 and up, that there's no real news if there's going to be like a vaccination requirement to go back full time in the fall. Do you know if that would happen in New York? Because I know like obviously there are some vaccines that you want to go to middle school, if you want to go to high school, you have to have them. Do you think that would be something that they would add to just make sure it wasn't a disrupt a risk of disruption if there was an outbreak? So my guess is they won't do it for the fall, in part because the vaccines are still under emergency approval, or so many of them are. And it's hard to mandate vaccination under the emergency approval. I do think long term, you're absolutely right. We mandate vaccines for all kinds of things to, you know, to go unless you have very specific reasons to opt out to go to schools, to go to summer camps, to go to all sorts of programs, you need your vaccinations. And I, I I think when we get there, the COVID vaccination will be and should be one of those. Yeah, I definitely agree. I think one thing I've seen here is so many of my classmates have been so reluctant to get the vaccine because first there was the issue with AstraZeneca and then there was the issue with Johnson & Johnson. And I think one big issue in both those cases is the lack of communication around what the problem is. I think that that's something, unfortunately, that right. my district and Seattle in general hasn't addressed is saying, hey, these two vaccines, we had issues with them because they were um, adenovirus care, use, using adenovirus as a carrier. Pfizer and Moderna aren't doing that. And that's one thing that I've noticed is there's this lack of communication that allows for people to see, oh, Facebook said these two vaccines were bad. I need to be careful and not get any vaccine. How do you think that, is there a way that the city can address, is there like a public relations communication aspect that could be used to kind of assuage the concern that I think a lot of families have about vaccinating their kids, vaccinating themselves. I mean, the, yes, the cities just need to, I mean, not just New York, cities everywhere, governments everywhere need to uh, be clear and confident about the public health communications they're putting out. Um, ideally find more and more validators. And sometimes those validators will be celebrities, but also honestly, they'll be doctors and nurse practitioners and community health workers, just folks people trust saying, there's no doubt about it. You need to take this vaccine. Um, one of the things we found in our surveying of New York City schools is a lot of families were willing to trust their principal as a validator for why they should come back. Now, I'm not saying the principal is necessarily a health expert, but if the principal can get the right health information and then say, here's what I'm hearing 
from our Department of Health. Here's what city and state officials are saying about the vaccines, why you should have it. It'd be really, really clear and give parents guidance of what they need. I think a lot of folks will find that compelling. And that might be parents finding it compelling, different than students, but also uh, if folks have a family doctor, I realize not everyone has, if folks go to a, a clinic regularly, have a nurse or nurse practitioner in their lives, those are some of the people that they're going to listen to. And we need to make sure folks are speaking with one voice that vaccinations work um, and that you're not getting vaccinated just to protect yourself. Of course you are. You're getting vaccinated because that affects others. That's the way you get to herd immunity. That's the way the people who can't get vaccinated because of um, uh, various compromise, health compromises they might have. The way you help keep them safe is by you getting vaccinated. It is a truly uh, collectivist act. It is a communitarian act. We need to think of it that way. It definitely is. I have like one more question, then I'll stop bulldozing Alexander and let no him talk for a <laughs> We're all good. Um, so I think yesterday it was Biden released a statement, the CDC released a statement saying, if you're fully vaccinated, you don't have to wear masks in pretty much any setting. <laughs> I personally, I think that that statement has some good and bad to it. So on the one hand, it motivates people like, hey, if you're vaccinated, you don't need to do this because unfortunately, a lot of people seem to think that wearing a mask is an infringement on their personal freedom. Um, <laughs> just in your opinion as someone who's worked in politics and community organizing, how do you think that communication plays out? Because isn't there a risk that people can just say, oh, I'm not gonna wear a mask. No one knows if I'm vaccinated or not. Like, do you think from a, just like from yep. your perspective, someone who's been in this area for such a long time, it was the right thing to do? I, you know, you, you've described the tension exactly. And I don't know uh, all the, elements that go into how the CDC decides what it says when it says, but I think it has given both hope and confusing confusion. We can have two feelings at the same time and that's how yep. I feel about it. I, I, I'm in a park right now. I've been wearing my mask. I just took it off for this interview, but I had it on when I came on and I run into other parents and we're all joking and saying, why are we wearing our masks still? We're vaccinated. We are told you're outside. Some of it is the non-clarity around kids because kids can't get vaccinated. Even though kids are, infected far less, far less seriously, are not super spreaders. Uh, we're all still concerned about, is there some, some factor that we should be cognizant of? And then of course, that you also mentioned, which is not everyone is vaccinated and you wanna be respectful of that. So personally, I'm gonna keep wearing my mask and take it down when people say, hey, I'm vaccinated and my mask is off. It, like, it becomes a conversation. I think over the summer, this may be likely to change. Uh, but for now, in, in the neighborhood I live in, which has had high levels of mass compliance, but also high levels of vaccination, ironically, I think people will, will keep their masks on a bit longer. Yeah, that seems to weirdly be the correlation is the higher <laughs> vaccine rates you have, the higher mass compliance you have. Okay, I will let Alex talk because I feel like I've bulldozed this for like no, a good no, 20 you're all minutes. Good. <laughs> uh, you know, um, the conversation has been very interesting and you, we're talking about vaccination and things like that. And a lot of people are saying, oh, well, you know, I'll get a copy of my uh, vaccination record card and I'll use that to prove that I'm vaccinated and then I can go into buildings without a mask and things like that. But now there are things... Um, there are blank vaccination cards online that you can find, you can download, and you can oh God. you can basically make a fake vaccination card. And that's, I mean, I'm seeing it in a few circles online and it's being spread around. People are like, oh, well, here's this PDF, just download it, make it look real, and you're good. And it, it, 
it's a very real possibility that if vaccination records are going to be used as a way to prove that you can go inside businesses without wearing masks, that you can just make a fake card going and you're good. Nobody's going to know the difference, right? You just have a card unless they have somebody there that can validate, but you know, not every business isn't going to have that, especially small businesses. Um, so that's a very real possibility because a lot of people are still very anti-vax and there are, there are things being said, at least yeah. I'm, in, I'm in California, I'm in San Francisco. Um, so very big hotbed. Um, you know, we just got the heaviest restrictions lifted and, uh, people are, are beginning to just go into businesses without masks. And this is in San Francisco. People are going into businesses without masks. They're like, I don't care. The owners don't care. The employees, I'm sure some of them care, but yeah. in a large part, people aren't reacting. I've seen people go into businesses that where I've been and they're not wearing a mask and nobody says anything. So I don't know how it is in New York, but. <laughs> well, I, I think that last point goes back to something Marielle was saying, which is about the, the, the mixed signals from the CDC, it sparks, it heightens the culture war. If you're a business and you say, you know what, I want people to be masked in my business uh, because I, it's what I feel like will be safe or there's some other outstanding reasons or I want to keep my employees safe, you are now asking for people who are already feeling tense about that, maybe already feeling like there's an infringement to actually say, well, the CDC says I don't have to. I, it, it's, it's such a turnaround of how, and now you're putting businesses in the place where they have to police their customers and create confrontations. So, so that's a hard part about it. And I'm, I'm seeing it a little of it. Again, I'm in an area that's pretty high mask compliance. I was at a bagel shop this morning. Somebody didn't have their mask on. The person behind the counter said, sir, just gestured. And he, he put it on, he put it on. But it's, um, none of these stores were even asking for vaccination cards or vaccination proof. It was really just about masking. On the vaccination cards and vaccination evidence, the best answer is let's get to herd immunity. Let's just get enough people vaccinated that it actually becomes less relative. Um, I, when I go, we'll go to a Broadway show, my family has worked in theater. I have a background in arts and culture. I cannot wait to go to theater again. Uh, I don't need to get into the details of has everyone who's come in shown their vaccination card or not. If that's what they want us to do, I will, I will do it. I'll bring it. And sure enough, some people get a fake vax card than to just get vaccinated. But I guess you can print it out online, so maybe it's not that much more. Yeah. But ultimately, if, if I think that 70% 70, 70 of the people in the city are vaccinated, I'm actually gonna feel much better than did the ushers and the box office managers manage to get people. So like in the end, it's let's get everyone vaccinated more than fighting over vaccination cards. It's just where my instinct is in terms of what's gonna make us safer overall. Um, I think, I also think that carrying a vaccination card ultimately is going to be a challenging thing to enforce. And so I'm not against requiring vaccinations. I'm actually very in favor of that, as I was saying, like schools. And again, when we're out of the emergency authorization mode, schools should be able to require it. Summer camps should be able to require it. Um, I do worry when there's things like you have to have a card or else, there can often be a level of criminalization that comes with the enforcement of it that is often unevenly criminalizes black and brown communities. And you can start to imagine worlds in which a, uh, a black youth in New York doesn't have their vaccination card and is punished for it in a way that a white youth would not be. It becomes one more form of criminalizing in a racially inequitable way. So it's not that I'm opposed to vaccination cards as a, as a tool, 
I want to think about how it's enforced and who enforces it and how we make sure that it doesn't have this sort of inequitable enforcement that we've seen across all other kinds of rules that lead to excessive policing and excessive criminalization. Yeah, I find, I find this whole vaccination card thing so disappointing on so many levels because firstly, just the sheer irony that most of the people who are like, oh, rather than just get a vaccine so I'm actually protecting myself, my friends, and you know, my elderly grandparents, I'm going to go through the work to fake a vaccination card are like the same people who tend to be like raging against undocumented immigrants and oh, faking papers and all that, which I'm sorry, um, convenience of not having to wear a mask versus breaking the law so you can work to like support your family seems like kind of, you know, not two equal things. So I just, I find this whole card thing so insane. It's just get the vaccine. If you're concerned, don't go on Facebook, <laughs> read an actual news article. I think honestly, the best way to solve this whole thing would just to be ban Facebook. <laughs> this point i mean honestly banning facebook or breaking it up so it has less of market power or uh passing laws that prevent it from doing the kind of targeted advertising it does which both allows it to become so profitable but profitable by feeding disinformation there are a lot of solutions and you said it as a joke but you're not wrong like facebook is an active problem in the way that it has a, essentially a mo monopolistic market uh, and a hold on our attention. And their practices can be regulated, they can be broken up in ways that will actually do better than us tagging this post is, is disinformation. Yeah, definitely. The The big tag of this is this is misinformation or this is misleading. We see that on Facebook, we see that on Instagram, we see that on a lot of social medias. I think that a lot of people will look at that and it kind of has, not the opposite of the effect, but not the intended effect. A lot of, I think the intended effect is people go, okay, well, maybe I should read more about this or something like that. But a lot of people will go, oh, well, this is just media bias. I'm not going to listen to this. You know, um, that's what I, at least I've interpreted to be kind of the case of that. I, I definitely will take the stance against Marielle, kind of. <laughs> um, I can understand the logic, I think, more for not getting vaccinated. I'm definitely, I'm not vaccinated right now, but I plan to soon. Um, I definitely understand and agree with the idea of herd immunization. I can't pronounce the word immunization, um, but I can also understand the other side. You know, it's, it's very understandable to say, okay, well, I want to take a step back. I want to wait a year or maybe a couple of years to see what are the long-term effects of this vaccination. And when there are things like the Johnson and Johnson thing that happened, a big scare goes up in the crowd. A lot of people jump in the back and they go, okay, well, I'll wait a little bit longer before I get vaccinated. And I don't think that helps, you know, with yeah. encouraging people to get vaccinated. Yeah. Especially because, I mean, at least I know it took me a solid like 30 minutes of Googling and reading articles to actually find out before I got vaccinated. So I just got my second dose that, okay, the issue with both AstraZeneca and Johnson and Johnson was that it used an adenovirus as the carrier and that was what the problem was, even though that's something that a lot of vaccines use. Watch how our listeners get terrified of all vaccines now, but not the goal. <laughs> Can't say anything. I think that you definitely do bring up an interesting point of like this whole, it's not that it's misleading, it's media bias thing. And that 
that definitely is a problem because I think that we have at this point two very different realities in America. I mean, we've got the progressive, um, you know, there is systemic racism. This is a problem that needs to be addressed, not just in policing, but in how we deal with economic inequality, healthcare, all of that. And then there's also the view on the right where this is a bunch of whiny snowflakes and we can't trust the government and vaccines are gonna microchip us or whatever it is. Um, I don't know how we can really honestly bridge the insanely large gap between those two realities when it just is the immediate reaction is, it's not that this is blatantly false information, it's media bias. Yeah, it's, it's, it's hard. I, I, you know, I wish I had a, a single answer and destroying Facebook is part of it, but it's not the single answer. Uh, and, and you saw, you know, as, as Trump got kicked off Facebook, people try to go elsewhere, parlor or whatever, but move, you know, there will always be, um, there will always be lies. There will always be uh, extreme partisan vitriol disinformation. This existed back before there was digital media, back when there was uh, more partisan newspapers and circulars going around. So the challenge is how pervasive the reach of these things can be and how fast they can be. And that's that's where digital media has really amped up in a dangerous way. And so I do think that that regulating and reducing the power and the market share of these digital platforms is part of it. But another part of it is rebuilding trust in public institutions. So I mentioned before, who should people listen to about going back to schools? It's principals. Who should people listen to about getting vaccinated? It's uh, their local doctors. But you know what? A lot of people don't have local doctors. A lot of people don't have health insurance that allow them to have a family doctor from that they know from age three to age 18. I'm still in touch with my pediatrician because he knew me my whole childhood. Um, that's just not true for a lot of people. How do you, I'm not saying everything is solved by having a local pediatrician, though it's a symbol for something bigger, right? How do you create that sense that there are institutions you can trust, whether it's the medical industry, which is obviously compromised by a lot of uh, big money from big pharma and a lot of other issues. Uh, people don't trust necessarily media the way that they used to, right? It used to be that you know, Walter Cronkite was the most trusted man in America. That's certainly not true of any news anchors today. Um, and so rebuilding institutions to, to serve a public good and actually reinvigorating the discussion of public good in our discourse is all part of it. Uh, and, and one thing that those in power can do right now is make sure government is delivering good and delivering public good and naming that for what it is. That when you have a government that can actually deliver things that help improve people's lives, improve their school. You know, one of the things in, in Biden's plan right now is that everyone should have broadband. Of course, everyone should have broadband. It's like FDR saying everyone should have electricity, uh, you know, or, or, or ensuring everyone had phone lines a few decades ago. Things like that, as, as odd as it seems, and as much as the broadband, it's gonna allow them to access disinformation a lot faster in a more universal <laughs> way. It also, it also is like a reminder, like our government is, is doing things that are, are putting, are making our lives better, are putting us on even footing. And maybe that will create a sense of trust an engagement in civic value that will allow trust to be built around other issues as well.
Yeah, I, I hope so. Because that's one thing that I see that's really kind of just disappointing, like just wholeheartedly disappointing is how we don't have trust in our public institutions, partially because there's wild conspiracy theories on Facebook. And just to clarify before Alex jumps on me again, I'm not actually saying we should ban Facebook. I'm just using that as my pipe dream. <laughs> but we have these conspiracy theories that get picked up on social media. And I think before the, you know, Donald Trump era, okay, there's a few people on the extreme of either side who are going to believe a conspiracy theory, fine. Now we've got freaking Tucker Carlson saying, if you see a kid with a mask at Walmart, you should call CPS. We've got media, I mean, definitely on the right, I think to some extent on the left too, that takes things that they know they can sensationalize to rile up their viewers and just run full speed ahead and i think that's really the problem like not just that there's crazy people on social media there's always gonna be crazy people on social media there's gonna be crazy people wherever you go you can't escape that i think the real issue is that our media institutions where you're supposed to go to find out about the world find out about what's going on have just this intense desire to rile up their bases and not actually share useful let alone true information i think that's an issue i don't know how to solve it because i mean we can't take people off air obviously that censorship but we can't have tucker carlson get sued every time he lies and have his legal defense that works that no reasonable person would actually take what he says seriously because that's that's absolutely insane <laughs> Uh, it, you know, it comes again, since the dawn of the Republic and long before, there have been people just as crazy and terrible as Tucker Carlson. Um, and they've motivated people to do horrible, horrible things before. I, I do think it is uniquely powerful, the combination of how many folks, how immediately, how many folks he can reach, how immediately he can reach them and the hypnotic power of television to do so. Where if you're really good at television and really good at social media, there is actually tricks that, that grab attention, right? That, that, that makes you addicted to it. That it, it's, it's a science to figure out how to steal people's attention and convince them. And that mastery is what makes it a little bit scarier. Um, but he is not the first demagogue and he won't be the last demagogue by any stretch to have had this kind of impact. And in the past, We've wrestled our way through it by personal connection, deep connection, real conversations in your own life. It, it, often it is not by fighting it out over social media. It is by finding the people that you can connect with, and making sure they're having real conversations as well, that they're hearing another side from someone that they trust, someone that they feel a connection to. That's why it's so important that you do have real world public spaces where people who don't necessarily know each other will come into contact and it, it, it creates the ability to hear from and see from other people who don't see the world exactly the way you do and social media actually reinforces that sometimes you can just see the world that other people uh, like you see so um, all the more reason to invest in the commons into our public sphere and into the real community connection and conversations that will one at a time undo the pernicious effect of the demagogues Sounds good. Well, um, Mariel, do you have any closing thoughts? Justin, do you have any closing thoughts? 
I mean, I, this has been a, a lovely conversation. It's great talking to you guys. It's great uh, hearing the questions and hearing what's undermined and hearing the solutions, right? This wasn't, this wasn't one way of, uh, this is a real conversation. I appreciated that. I would just say um, one thing that's always been true as well about politics is too many people in politics want to talk about young people and don't necessarily talk with them and don't necessarily listen to them. Uh, throughout my work, since I was a young person, uh, I've always raised that issue. I'm not a young person anymore. I'm 43. I have young people of my own in my life, uh, like me and my kids, but I also try to continue to listen to what young people, whether it's high school students, college students, young professionals are thinking to make sure that I'm working on solutions that work with other folks. I'm glad you're having conversations like this. And I'm glad that uh, you are also being trusted folks that are validators in your own community, among your own age group, but also ideally pulling parents, grandparents, older generations into thinking that need that, that we need. So thank you for doing that work. Thank you. <laughs> yeah, we, we appreciate it. I think Mariel got disconnected or something, but I know she was having internet issues throughout this. That's unfortunate. But um, yeah, with that, uh, oh, she, is she back? She's back. Um, I have no idea what happened. I'm so sorry about that. Stuff happens. But um, yeah, with that, that's the end of the, the podcast episode. Uh, thank you again for uh, joining us, Mr. Krebs. Um, thank you very much for having me. I appreciate it. Sounds good. Um, for everybody listening, uh, the links down below will lead to both. Uh, social medias for the Institute and social medias for uh, Krebs. You can find his, I'm sure you, um, you have a website, Mr. Krebs? Yep, uh, and you can call me Justin. Uh, and my website is ju justin2021.org. That tells you all about all right. my campaign for city council. So my thoughts on, on schools, climate change, open space, health, affordable housing, uh, caring for our seniors, caring for our families, and so much more. Sounds good. So you guys can find those links down below. You can find social medias for the Institute down below. Um, our episodes come out every Friday at noon Pacific Standard Time. Uh, thank you for listening. Have a good one, Justin. You too. Thanks. Thank you for coming and chatting with us. Thank you for listening to today's episode. If you enjoyed this episode and would like to continue to support us, you can do so by checking out our Instagram pages at YIP Institute and at WatchFurbum. You can also look at our website at www.yipinstitute.com. Make sure to follow our page as we upload multiple videos weekly. Have a good day.